0: We want you to know you absolutely matter to God, and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know everything that you do. I know that you love me very much. I know that you believe in me. I know that you continue to serve me well, you are patient and strong, and you get better at it every day. But I have something to say against you. You let that woman Jezebel teach you. She says that she is a prophet from God, but she leads my servants into bad ways, into cross-denying, self-indulging religion. I have given her time to stop doing these bad things, but she refuses to change how she lives. I'm about to lay her low, along with her partners, as they play their sex and religion games. I will throw her on a bed of suffering. I will also cause great pain for those who do the same bad things. Then every church will know that appearances don't impress me. I x-ray every motive and make sure you get what's coming to you. To the rest of you thigh tyrants who have nothing to do with this outrage, you have not learned what they call Satan's deep secrets, be assured I'll not make life any harder for you than it already is. Hold on to the truth you have until I get there. Here's the reward I have for every conqueror, everyone who keeps at it, refusing to give up. I will give great authority. You will rule the countries of the world along with your shepherd king, whose rule is as firm as an iron staff. Their resistance will be fragile as clay pots. You will have the same authority that I received from my father. I will also give the morning star to those people who win against Satan. God's spirit is speaking to you in the churches. You should understand what the Spirit is saying to you. You have ears, so listen carefully.
1: Amen. Kathleen Stosky, everybody. She's brave. The next step is for her to be on that worship team. She's got a lovely voice. Um, I've been saying that the overall theme of Revelation could be summed up as open your eyes that there's more going on in the world than meets our our five senses. There's an unseen world. And I suppose the major theme of these seven letters that we are talking about is is Jesus uh, is encouraging disciples how to live in the world but not of the world. And there's a huge difference between those two little two letter words, in, and of, and in fact, I ask you every week to intentionally, strategically, unapologetically go in the world, bring Jesus with you, and you know, go be the church. And uh, but to do that without adopting the values and morals and the priorities of the world, and it's it's hard, right? Throughout the history of Christianity, we've we've not always you know, gotten the, the balance right. There have been many versions of what I'll call isolationists. Uh, my father-in-law lives in uh, the heart of Amish country in Ohio, and uh, anybody ever go that way? It's really fascinating to kind of step into this time machine, and there's this group of people who have decided by and large to isolate, stay among themselves, don't adopt the waves of the world, in a way that I think most of us would call extreme. Um, it's a trip, man, visiting in that area. The buggies and the bonnets and the chrum where they uh, once a year let the 18 year olds sort of experience, or um, once oh, they're 18, experience a year of you know dipping their toe in the ways of the world. And the last time I visited we drove past all these farms, big farms, sometimes communal living farms. No electricity, no gas powered anything. And I noticed all these booths at the end of their long driveways. And I was like, is that like a school bus shelter? And then I was like, they don't get on buses, dummy, and they don't go to public school either. It turns out these booths were, a way to try to hang on to their young people, their young families. There are these young men, young women, trying to start businesses, often woodworking, beautiful furniture, for instance. But they can't operate a business without having access to a phone. And since phones and phone lines aren't allowed on the property, they've compromised a bit, and put these telephone shelters right at the very end of their driveway, almost touching the public road. So even the strict isolationists are having a hard time not assimilating a little bit to the ways of the world. We probably have more of a philosophy that Jesus would actually want us to interact with the world, serve the world, love the world, hang out with the kinds of people that Jesus would have hung out with, go to the places uh, where Jesus would have. But our temptation is less about isolating and probably more about being totally overwhelmed, overrun by the culture totally losing our Christian identity and values. And, you know, through most of Israel's history, uh, they were captives. They were under the control of others. Um, they were living in Babylon, both literally and, and you could say figuratively. Sometimes Babylon was Rome, or sometimes it was the Assyrians. Uh, Babylon has come to represent the spiritual and cultural occupation of a people. So how do you stay faithful in Babylon, a godless culture? It's, it's hard. I could make an argument that we're living in Babylon, and it's a tension we have to manage, being in the world, but not of the world. And later Jesus will say in this letter, On this issue though, there's no tension to manage. There's no balance to maintain. You're either with me or you're not. It's it's an either or scenario. Uh, Thyatira was a church that knew all too well about trying not to succumb to the culture around them. By the way, your pastor had to look up how to pronounce Thyatira. And so, three YouTube, you know those YouTube pronunciation videos? I looked up three of them. They all gave three different ways. Thyatira, its It sort of sounds like a, 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 an Ikea shelving unit or something. You know what those books need is a, one of those Thyatira shelves. Um, most scholars say that uh, of the seven letters, this can be the hardest to interpret. And uh, it's partly because there's just not enough archaeological information about, about life in Thyatira to get all the, the nuance of what Jesus is saying. But the big message, the overall message is crystal clear. And it's fundamental. I would say generational in that every Christ follower in every city in the world has to reckon with what this Thyatira church is reckoning with. So here's what we do know. We know the people of Thyatira believed that the Roman emperor was the incarnation of the god Apollo. Both Apollo and Caesar were called the son of Zeus, or get this, son of the most high god. In fact, the emperor Domitian, who we've talked about, he named his son, you ready for this? Son of God. Uh, It was on their coins. Uh, Hello, I'd like you to meet my six year old uh, son of God. Uh, Son of God, put your juice box down. I'd like you to meet this nice man. Um, On the coins, it would say that. And, uh, And you know what else is said on the coins? He's portrayed holding seven stars. Uh oh. Does that sound familiar? From, from the other readings. So this might be precisely why this is the only place in the whole book of Revelation where Jesus specifically addresses himself as son of God. It's a deliberate reminder. Maybe it's even a little poke in the eye to the phonies and the wannabes. And, and here's something else we know about Thyatira that I think you'll find relevant to us. The city is prosperous, Uh, It's a commercial center, it's a manufacturing hub for Asia. It's kind of like southern Ontario in terms of, you know, a first century industry and production. And Thyatira is famous for an unusual number of trade guilds. Uh, It's like um, an extreme version of a union. And history has revealed that there were guilds for wool workers, linen workers, makers of clothes, uh, dyes, leather workers, tanners, potters, slave dealers, bronze smiths, shoemakers, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, they all had a guild and uh, they had a lock on their trade which meant that you know no one could really make it in their field unless they were a member of one of these guilds. Problem is, least for a Christian, membership in one of these guilds posed a a dilemma uh, for those who were serious about their faith. Why? Because it turns out membership involved um, something more than company picnics. It It was extracurricular activities that were pivotal to membership, and wouldn't you know it, inextricably tied up with the worship of other gods. It would begin with, you know, a regular... Guild meals together uh, where wine was poured out as an offering to the gods. It would be like if they had communion to other gods, heresy. In fact, it's a meal that began and ended with their version of a pagan grace. And I don't, I don't know what that even would have sounded like, you know, Satan, thank you for this meal and the evil hands that have prepared it or whatever. Animal sacrifice would have been part of that evening and offered at an altar. And of course, um, you'd partake in eating that demon meat afterwards. Mmm, is that demon meat? You can really taste the demons in it. And surprise, surprise, uh, these meals would often devolve into drunken, Orgies. And we talked a little bit last week about the sexually permissive culture of the Roman Empire in that day. Um, you know, Rosemary Mayhew told me a little interesting tidbit after last week's sermon that in some of the archaeological findings they've determined scientifically through human remains that whole cities, it seems, were infected with syphilis and STD. It was pervasive. Could a Christian participate in these mandatory idol feasts? Uh, I think the temptation would be very strong to make a living. Imagine you're a dad, you know, trying to provide for your family. But you can't say that attending one of these is a neutral act, can you? This is not a question of sort of, getting the balance right. This, this seems like a red line. And uh, I would say Christian today, horoscopes, Ouija boards, fortune tellers, psychics, um, some of the Eastern meditations, some of you see them as silly and harmless. I'm telling you they are not neutral acts. Uh, pornography, locker room talk, workplace flirting, getting drunk on the weekends. You may feel they're pretty low on the moral failing chart. But I'm telling you, they're not neutral acts. But what if not joining a trade union meant financial disaster? Uh, What does a loyal disciple of Jesus do? And just last week, remember, I said that the battle was not only coming from outside the church walls but more dangerously, was coming inside the church wall. Stay with me, folks. Come on. And uh, it was an overt war on the outside, but it was sort of a covert war within church. And so here Jesus calls out a certain woman in the church. He calls her Jezebel. And apparently she was teaching, or rather justifying, compromise. Uh, We don't know if her real name was Jezebel. Probably not, because uh, that name was sort of a shorthand for a certain type of character, a certain type of sinful person. How many, just raise your hand if you are familiar with the Old Testament name Jezebel. Yeah, okay. Now, for, for some of you who are not, let me just give you a quick synopsis of this real person. And you'll see why this is a very serious accusation that Jesus is making. Jezebel, back in the Old Testament, is a committed Baal worshiper of the fertility God. And she came into the life of of Israel through marriage to King Ahab. It was not a marriage God looked favorably upon. Very quickly, she became a force to be reckoned with in Israel. Um, She starts to import her Baal worship. Uh, She persuades her husband to build altars to to Baal and Aphrodite, the the gods of lust and pleasure, who, who the Romans called Venus. There's sexual iconography everywhere. And she even recruits 850 prophets of Baal to spread her worldview. Any prophet of the true God, Yahweh, uh, who dared speak against her, was executed. She's, she's vicious. Now, here's her counter-argument. It's an argument that I hear today. She'd probably say, no one is stopping you from worshiping Yahweh. You, you can worship Yahweh right alongside Baal. And I think she probably knew better, though. I think she knew that Baal and Yahweh cannot exist side by side without compromising one or both. Um, We want to be kind of a both and society. And God says, I don't do both and. Um, I'm an either or kind of God. You shall have no other gods before me. Compromise, compromise, some peaceful coexistence in your worship is actually out of the question. And and you may remember that God sent his prophet Elijah to sort of jolt people back to reality. And here's what Elijah said. He said, you can't have it both ways. How long are you going to sit on the fence? Ouch. In some of uh, your lifetimes, There has been another famous example of someone who could not, would not compromise in this way, Uh, who could not be a Nazi pastor. No such thing in his thinking. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who ultimately died because he couldn't compromise. And on this point, he said, the human heart has the capacity for only one all-encompassing, all-embracing allegiance. In my childhood, I had a a musical hero, and I'm going to show my age here. Keith Green, anyone? Keith Green? Yeah, yeah, Jeremy, right? Uh, His life can be summed up, I think, by his biography. No compromise. No compromise. He just wouldn't stand for it. Um, not from the record industry, not from promoters. He was a man of integrity and no compromise. So apparently, this woman who Jesus calls Jezebel was at work in the church advocating a both-and position. We don't know the details. Somehow, uh, it says in Scripture that she was advocating what she called the, the secret deep things, it reminded me of, of the book, The Secret, that came out a few years ago. Is that ring a bell? Um, it actually kind of tricked some Christians into believing that there was sort of this gospel 2.0. Um, and it was taking people down a really ungodly path. And Jezebel got Christians con- convinced that participating in the ungodly activities of the city had no impact on their relationship with Jesus. But the reality is exactly the opposite, and it's why Jesus is so firm in this letter. Now, let me just take a a second here uh, to do a Jonathan aside, okay? Uh, This is the stuff that sometimes gets me in trouble, but I I feel strongly about this. Something embarrassing and shameful has happened on the margins of the Protestant contemporary church, um, especially churches like ours that believe in things like prophetic, the prophetic words. I I, I won't ask women to raise their hands, but I'll bet there is a percentage of women, uh, mostly those raised in the church, who have been told either to their face or behind their back likely from some insecure, spiritually abusive man that they are a Jezebel or have a Jezebel spirit. Sometimes it comes from an ex-boyfriend, an ex-husband, some man who feels rebuffed and rejected. It can come from an insecure church leader who, who doesn't like strong women. It can come from lustful men who are actually projecting their own sinful inclinations on some woman they find attractive. Women, if you have ever experienced that, I am so sorry. Uh, I'm sorry you've had to live with that label, even if you knew uh, it was not true. You've experienced that that gaslighting. It's actually spiritual abuse, and it should never, should never have happened. I imagine there have been women so hurt by that accusation, they've left the church permanently. And God, God weeps. Uh, maybe that's even a label that you would want prayer to be set free from the lie of it. Is there such thing as a spirit of Jezebel? I'm no expert on these things. i th- I think there is, uh, in the same way that there's a spirit of the age, that there's a spirit of heaviness. I think a church like NAC that's been around for over thirty five years, has likely had to address that in a in a real way. But it has been so egregiously applied. i just I just want to use some of my time to address that. Maybe that's just for one. Woman here, or one woman who is watching, and uh, maybe even for one man who needs to apologize to someone. Men do not throw that term around flippantly. Uh, do, not, do not come to that conclusion individually without the discernment and wisdom of, of others. Okay, many of you have no idea what I just went off on, but I think that. That was for someone this morning. Back to Thyatira, Jesus actually has a lot of good things to say about them as a church. He gives one of the best attaboys in all the letters. He says, I know your deeds. I know your love and faith and service and perseverance. And that your deeds of late are even greater than at first. It sounds like they were growing and maturing in discipleship. But they were still tolerating Jezebel, which meant that they were tolerating compromise. And Jesus just won't have it. Why? Because to compromise means to commit spiritual adultery. And that ultimately leads to spiritual death. We we just can't have it both ways. It, it, It won't work. It's an either-or situation, not a both-and. Any compromised arrangement involving Jesus means the relationship with Jesus is gonna get short-changed in all of it. It's a message, I think, that's as relevant for Knack today as it was for this church 2,000 years ago. It, it, it might go something like, Dear Knack, who will you follow? Jesus or the trade guild? Jesus or the culture? Jesus or your boyfriend? What will be my uppermost importance? My business? (laughs) Or my ministry? Or the vitality and the intimacy of a relationship with the Lord? Which values are going to take precedence? The spirit of the age or the spirit Of the Lord. Look, most of those choices are not as overt for us as going to the demon feast. Uh, We don't have to, um, you know, go to the drunken orgy to have a red line. Often our choices are much more subtle, aren't they? Hey, we'd like you to pray at our conference opening, but just, you know, None of that Jesus stuff, okay? No one is forced to go to the company drunken orgy, but maybe a bit of pressure just to make an appearance at some event that you know doesn't feel right. It's more subtle. We have to wrestle with the spirit of compromise every day. Jezebel still has her prophets in 2022, doesn't she? We hear the voices all the time hey, look, I'm all for loyalty to Jesus, but things don't really work out that cleanly in the real world, as though the real world doesn't include the very real presence of Jesus. I mean, there is only this world, the real world, and this is the world that he calls us to follow him in. You may have heard, you know, business is business, and Politics is politics, right? Family is family. It's kind of like, keep your faith out of my business, (laughs) out of my politics, as though Jesus can be confined to one sphere of life. You know what that's called? It's something I've noticed men in particular, I'm hard on the men today, can be a little too good at. It's called compartmentalization, right? One set of values and priorities for this one sphere of life, and then another set of values and priorities for this other sphere of life, and never the twain shall meet. Actually, you know, compartmentalization is the, is the way we maintain the illusion of both and. Um, compartmentalization is where you can be holy on Sunday and allow poison into your mind on Monday, you know, because it's entertainment or whatever. Some of you uh, en- engineers or, or contractors know this, but like I learned, compartmentalization actually began as an architectural theory to divide buildings into sections which can be closed off to prevent fire spreading. And I, and I, guess, I guess some of us believe that our lives can be closed off into sections as well. You know, faith in this compartment, work in this one. Jesus, whose whose very name, according to Daryl Johnson, uh, means something like Yahweh to the rescue. That's that's what his name is interpreted. I just think that's great. Jesus uh, calls his disciples in Thyatira to hold tightly to him. In verse 25, to courageously reject the spirit of compromise. It's easier said than done, right? Um, how? How do we maintain the courage and the grace to follow Jesus without compromise? It sounds like a cliche, but just hear me out. We do it by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, by keeping his face before us. Uh, Daryl Johnson tells the story of of, um, ministers, church planners that he worked with in different parts of Asia. And some parts of Asia, as you know, um, the sexual temptation is is ubiquitous. Uh, At any hotel, in any city, there is hospitality service and they're initiating contact. It seeks you out. You don't even have to be looking for it. And one of the men in his small group, um, he shared how he easily can resist temptation. He says he keeps a picture of his wife and kids in his wallet and in his briefcase. It's the first thing he sees, actually. And one evening, he's uh, eating alone at a hotel, and he's approached by a hospitality girl. And he took out his wallet And he showed the picture of his wife, and he said, I belong to her. And it broke the spell, (laughs) the spell of the spirit of the age, the spell of compromise. That is how we stay loyal to Jesus Christ, by keeping a picture of Jesus, symbolically speaking, or maybe not symbolically speaking, right, Mai? Uh, Pulling out that picture and reminding ourselves, I belong to him, right? And now we don't know what Jesus looked like. I think we know he didn't look like the Swedish hippie that many artworks depict him as, right? But in this letter, Jesus gives us another picture of how he is now. And it's a picture that can help us keep our eyes on him, keep us faithful. And so I just want to tell you six quick facets of how Jesus reveals himself in this letter. As I mentioned, the first one is that he reclaims the title son of God. It ain't Apollo, it ain't Caesar, uh, who call themselves son of the high God. Jesus is the one true perfect son of God, the embodiment of the unseen God, and he has been given authority over all Apollos and all Caesars and every trade guild and union, over every prime minister and parliament and courts and judges and corporations and nations. He is the CEO above all CEOs. A uh, second thing he reveals in this letter, and Glenn talked about this last week, he's, he says, he has eyes like a flame of fire. It's an image that maybe is both a little terrifying to you and, and hopefully a little comforting. These are eyes that can pierce the darkness, eyes that flash with insight. They, they are eyes like a searchlight that expose all the hidden corners. He's actually, he's actually the one who knows the secret hidden things. All the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. It says in verse 23, nothing we do or say or think or feel can escape his notice. Again, maybe that sounds a little terrifying to you, but I hope it's comforting because those are the same eyes who look so deeply into us, not to shame us, but to cleanse us, to heal us, Not to spy on us, but to transform us. He looks at me and through me to free me. Amen? And a third feature in this picture of what Jesus presents of himself. It says his feet are like burnished bronze. Feet so strong, they're able to trample evil. Trample it to dust. Feet that pursue us. When we wander. Fourth feature of Jesus. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she is unwilling. So the one with flaming eyes and, and bronze feet is also merciful. Even to Jezebel. He gives her time to come to her senses. He gives her time to turn around, repent. He gives us time. He gives you time. His judgments aren't hasty. He waits for our response. But he won't wait forever. The fifth feature of this picture that he paints for himself, in verse 23, he says, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now, this might fill you with uh, mixed feelings as well, maybe even um, with what Scripture calls the fear of the Lord. We know Jesus doesn't coerce anyone. We have free will. But Jesus does say, in essence, uh, choose which God you'll serve, but be prepared to live with the consequences, okay? If we do the deeds of Jezebel, be prepared to inherit the consequences of Jezebel. The bed of sickness in verse 22, whatever that is, doesn't sound good. But if we do the deeds of Jesus, Verse 26, we inherit the consequences of his deeds, uh, being one with him and the father in perfect love and unity and joy. Don't misunderstand me. Like salvation is by grace and grace alone. It, it, it's, it's one of the non-negotiables that we talk about. So this is not salvation by deeds. It's an understanding that our actions Emerge from a heart, a heart that reveals our true allegiance. We can attend church, right? We can sing all the songs, pray the prayers, um, even recite the creeds, but the, the proof really comes on Monday, doesn't it? In the way that we live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, how we treat our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, how do we spend? our time and money. This is why this annoying guy (laughs) stands up and says to you every week, it's great that you came to church, but just don't just come to church. Go and be the church. Live it. The last facet that Jesus reveals about himself in this letter is that he makes incredible promises. Listen to this. To the one who overcomes... And keeps my deeds until the end. I will give authority over the nations. Just as I have received authority from my father. What a promise. Those who remain loyal to him will rule with him. Why would we even want to compromise in this life? Why fear rulers and powers and enemies over whom Jesus gets the last word? Those who willingly submit to him in this lifetime will rule alongside him in the age to come. Now, check out this second promise. It's just as staggering. To the one who overcomes, I will give the morning star. Just beautiful. In the last chapter of Revelation, Jesus refers to himself as the morning star. Um, I'm not ashamed to show my ignorance here. How How many knew that the morning star was actually a real thing? Well, aren't you smart? (laughs) Kirsten's a teacher. Uh, I learned that the morning star appears at the the darkest part of the night, around 2 or 3 a.m., and it appears at that point when the night is as dark as it's going to get. And at that moment when it seems that there's no sign of dawn, but then it emerges, really faint at first, um, but it means the night can't withstand the dawn much longer. It's just a matter of time before the light sweeps the darkness away. It's like the morning star pulls the light behind it. And it's kind of like how Jesus pulls the kingdom and justice and light behind him. I will give you the morning star. Jesus says that the light is coming. Encouragement is coming. Those who keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, the bright morning star, will have intimacy with Jesus and the assurance that the struggle is almost over. When you have the bright Morning star, you have the courage to remain faithful, even even when it costs you something. Jesus uses the word overcome in all seven of these letters. Uh, It's to those who who keep His word until the end, and to those willing to lose often, those willing to be left out, willing to be rejected by the culture. Uh, maybe even for the majority of this bat of an eyelash kind of life. And then guess what? Surprise. The, the, they end up ruling and reigning for eternity with the Son of God. The issue is loyalty every day. Is it, is it an either or or a both and issue? And in light of Jesus and who he is, how how can it be anything but either or? You know, the word jealous in our culture um, doesn't have any redeeming connotation, does it? It's wrapped up in the worst characteristics of humanity. Uh, Jealous stalkers, possessive, suspicious, resentful, covetous, envious of other success or possessions. Yet throughout scripture, God calls himself a jealous God. And it's implicit in this letter that Jesus is jealous of our affection. So if God is sinless, then maybe we need a new understanding of the word jealous. I think I've told you this before, but some of my best evangelistic conversations have come with hairdressers. I don't know, something about the vulnerability of people touching your head and ears and seeing all your bald spots. Maybe it just opens up conversation. But I remember one asked me what I did for a living. And that's always a potential uh, conversation killer. I said, pastor. And she let an audible, uh, ugh. And I'm like, okay, well that's unprofessional. But what's at the heart of this for her? And it turns out, as I dug a little deeper, she couldn't reconcile the idea of God being good and being jealous. Um, some people don't need much of an excuse to reject God, and, and this was hers. And I tried to counter, you know, if, you're tr- if you truly love someone, if you saw them flirting and you, don't, and you don't feel a pang of jealousy, you know, I'd question your love for them. Um, isn't outrage and pain an appropriate response to that kind of relational violation? God isn't some abstract entity, right? He's not some impersonal idea. I mean, it's actually amazing that the creator of the universe would so deeply connect with us that he would open himself up to the sorrow and anguish of human rejection all because of his great love. Well, she wasn't having it. I hope you can see it. May you have the eyes to see That his jealousy, his intolerance of other lovers, of other gods, his either-or conditions are a sign of a God who loves you so much, who'll fight for your love, who asks for our singular loyalty in the same way a spouse would. May you see today how great His affection is for you. May you know that these afflictions will one day pass, but the prize of his glory, the prize of his relationship, the prize of Jesus is our reward. Let's stand together as we sing.